Today's reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another in any if any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all, these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name, in, do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, God the Father through him. Good morning again, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here uh, to share God's word with you this morning uh, and just to see and hear how you guys are going as well. I hear great things from Scott uh, regularly when we catch up uh, down on the plains. He often comes down to visit me, uh, and I'm excited to be here this morning as we unpack God's word. Uh, I saw that you guys were going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1, which sounds really exciting, but I'm sorry if you came really excited to understand all the mysteries of Revelation. I do have lots of thoughts about that. You can ask me later on, uh, but Scotty will be continuing that series when he returns, hopefully next week. Uh, but as you saw, today we're going to look at Colossians 3. So why don't I pray that God will help us this morning uh, to listen to his word and also to be willing to obey it as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that your word is powerful that by it you created everything that we see and experience in this world, that your word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of the Lord Jesus, and that one day by your word you will raise people out of the grave to new life forever with you. And so, Father, as we hear your word today, may it give life to us. May it teach us your ways. 
May it challenge us when we're complacent. May it comfort us in our weakness. And may it teach us to please you more and more as we wait for our Lord Jesus to return. Amen. Uh, Be true to yourself. Uh, You do you. Uh, Live your truth. These are just some of the slogans that we encounter in our world today. And here we go. Slide the clicker. There we go. Uh, No one wants to conform to the norm in our world. Uh, Each of us think that we've been made unique, uh, special, that all of us are distinctive like little snowflakes. No two are the same. And so in the words of a recent movie's theme song, uh, The Greatest Showman, uh, in its theme song, This Is Me, it says, Look out, because here I come, and I'm marching on to the beat that I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. Our world is based on what some people have labelled expressive individualism. That is, I fundamentally believe that at my very heart, I am an individual. And I need to express or to perform my true self to the world around me. It sounds really great. It sounds really liberating. It's the stuff that Hollywood movies are made of. It's so exciting that our fundamental identity is a personal, individual identity. But as much as we like to think of ourselves as unique snowflakes and that no one tells me how to live, humans are not isolated individuals. Uh, We live in communities. We all have to engage with one another and we have to work out how to live with each other. And surprisingly, engaging with other people makes me who I am today. You see, I would not be the person you see today standing before you if I wasn't shaped by my parents, by my sisters, by my wife, by my kids, by my friends, by my colleagues, even by my enemies. Every relationship that I'm in in this world forms me and moulds me for good reasons and for bad reasons. And so none of us are blank slates. None of us are without biases. And these communities that we live in, they shape our trivial desires, what kind of food we like, whether we eat Tabasco sauce, uh, but also our deeper desires. They form us culturally but they also form us morally. Expressive individualism says that I choose my identity, I choose my morals, and no one else does. And I choose freely who I want to be. But the reality is that that choice isn't as free as we'd like to think it is. The desire to fit in with everyone else means that peer pressure isn't just something that teenagers deal with in high school and get over. We never escape the pressure to conform. And today we're going to see in Colossians 3 how God offers us something better than expressive individualism. In the gospel, God unites people together into communities so that they can begin to live out a new identity, not on their own as an isolated person, but within a Christian community. And so Paul reminds the Christians in Colossians chapter 3 of their true identity in this world as they wait for Jesus. Look what he says in verses 1 to 4 on the screen. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Except here's the problem. I misquoted the Bible passage, and none of you picked it up. Did any of you notice where I actually changed a word in the passage? It's okay if it didn't stand out to you, because I left off the letter S. It's there in red in verse 2. Paul doesn't tell individuals to set their mind on things above. 
he tells the Colossian Jesus community to set their minds collectively, plurally, on things above. And the reason why we don't notice it in English is because the word you in English can mean singular, it can mean one person, or it can mean everybody, a plural. And that's why often people who come to Australia from other cultures, when they learn English, they often change it to express what's known as the second person plural, for those of you who are English nerds. Have you ever heard people talk about yous? Yep, you've all heard about yous. If you're going to read Colossians 3 with this kind of English, it would sound a bit like this. If then yous have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For yous have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then yous also will appear with him in glory. It's a bit of a laugh, but there's something significant there, because we read the word you as a singular word, even though in English it could mean either, because we are so used to thinking by default as individuals, all about me. But Paul says that the new you is not an individual, but a new yous, a new community. Jesus' death on the cross has broken down every barrier between self-centred, inwardly turned human beings in his body on the cross, literally, but also figuratively in the church in his body, he has brought us together. As it says earlier in Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so now, in the church, in this new body, this new Christian community, we are learning how to put to death the old self and how to put on the new self. And I think that this plurality, this community of believers, is a powerful truth that helps you as an individual in your struggle to be more like Christ. You see, if Colossians 3 was just about individuals, then it can feel like God is just telling me to pull my socks up and to try harder each day on my own. Come on, kill sin in your life. Be a really, really good person. Come on, do better. But if it's something that Jesus is asking his people to do as a community, then that is a supportive thing. As a community, we help each other put off our sin and to learn to live out our new community identity together. I can go to my older Christian brothers and sisters who are more mature and I can learn from them how they've sought to live out this new identity in Christ. I can get along so those who are younger in their faith and I can help them in their times of struggle as well. And so the church comes, becomes what could be called an alternative school of moral formation. Now that is, as a society of individuals, we keep thinking that no one else forms me, that I express my self-chosen individuality. But the reality is that we are swimming around unconsciously in the world's schools of moral formation. We have social media on our phones curating not just our selfies, but also our values. We have Netflix not just entertaining us with TV shows, but retraining us to think a certain way. We have schools and universities not just giving us an education, but giving us a worldview, a way of seeing how society should fit together and run. And we have trillions of dollars of marketing being spent telling us not just what you should buy, but why your lives are deficient and missing something unless you have it. It is happening all the time and we're just swimming around in it. We are constantly being formed morally by the world around us without us being conscious of it. But in Jesus' community, as we gather here together this morning, we have an alternative. 
a place where we can begin to learn how to detox from our old way of life and learn how to live out this new self, which, as it says in verse 10, is being... go back a few, as being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And our creator in this passage is Jesus. Uh, The Greek word nathetes is the word from which we get a disciple in the Bible. And it essentially means a student or a learner or an apprentice. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you are not just some passive follower, like a follower on social media. You you can click like or you can click follow online and it costs you nothing because you probably won't learn too much from an influencer online. But a disciple, an apprentice, follows their teacher around in community. They learn their way of life from them and pick up things from them. It's less like a TAFE apprenticeship where you just learn (laughs) skills and it's more like a Jedi Knight apprenticeship in Star Wars where you absorb your master's teachings and ways of life. Uh, Cole Marshall and Tony Payne describe it like this. They say that the goal was for the disciple to not only learn what their teacher knew, information, but also to be like their teacher, to walk in his ways. They weren't learning a subject. They were learning a person, if we can put it like that. His knowledge, his wisdom, his whole way of life. And this can be described as transformative learning. Transformative learning is a kind of learning where the student's understanding of reality is changed and keeps changing leading to a transformed experience in life. Our understanding and life changes decisively as we repent and submit ourselves to a new teacher who reveals the Father to us and reveals ourselves to us. And so how does that relate to the church? Well, in the New Testament, a church can very fruitfully be thought of as a transformative learning community. That is, a gathering of people who are all learning Christ together. Everything we do as God's gathered people, as church, should be an exercise in the transformative learning of Christ. And when the local church is clear on her identity, that we are a learning community helping one another to learn how to live out the new you, this new self based on Christ, then the church shines in her role as an ambassador to the world in a foreign country. An ambassador doesn't seek to overthrow the host country's laws or rules that they find themselves in. Ambassadors don't seek to change the situation in their host country so it matches up with their homeland. But neither do they live like everybody else. They seek to represent their homeland and everything that is good about it, to be a shining example of their homeland. And the church's role primarily is to be the church, a beautiful picture of a community of broken but forgiven people, helping one another to learn how to think more like Jesus, how to desire more like Jesus, and how to act more and more like Jesus. Ethicist Stanley Halvar says that this is the job of the church, to be a different alternative community from the world around us. He says that the ethical goal of the church is not primarily an attempt to make the world more peaceable or just, although those are good things to do, But put starkly, the first social ethical task of the church is to be the church, the servant community. Yes, the church can be frustrating. I don't know anything about you guys particularly, but I just know from my own experience of various churches that I've been in, it can be frustrating. It can be disappointing. And you are likely to get hurt at times if you hang around long enough. But it is also a place of healing place of learning and a place as we'll soon see a place of peace 
But what is it that we learn in church, uh, in this alternative school of moral formation? Well, if you look at the list in Colossians 3 verse 12, we see a list of characteristics, virtues that mark out the Christian community as different and distinctive from the world around them. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you almost must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And do you notice these virtues? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness or gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace. Now this list contains five of the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit that Paul elsewhere describes in Galatians chapter 5 as well. There's a bit of a problem with Christian virtues. Uh, I think that they suffer from a public relations disaster. I think they need a new brand manager. My four-year-old daughter uh, was recently given a book from a friend about the fruit of the spirit. It's a wonderful book, and here it is. It's called Cutie Fruities and the Fruit of the Spirit. It's a scratch and sniff book with various smelling fruit and characters such as Gracie Gentleness, Pippa Peace, Lily Love, Paisley Patience, and Katie Kindness. But what do you notice about all these characters? A few different They're all girls. Okay, I had a look at Kurong, the Christian bookstore website, and I could not find a book with boys named after the fruit of the spirit. And I think for many in society, and sadly many within the church, these virtues are seen as a feminine thing. A thing that are for little girls but not for little boys, and definitely not for grown-ups. And so kindness, patience, love, peace, gentleness, and forgiveness get relegated to the women, and the men feel like they can choose to ignore these aspects of the Christian life. And instead they can focus on fighting and the warrior images in the Bible. Our church historians call this muscular Christianity. It's a phenomenon that's happened quite a few times in church history that often led to disastrous outcomes for the church and especially for male church leaders when they neglect their new identity or they see that these virtues like gentleness and kindness are a second-rate option for the Christian life. Where are the books in Kurong with Kevin Kindness or Patience Patrol or GI Gentleness, Sir, Yes, Sir, Please? I think we don't value these things because in our eyes or in our world's eyes, they seem passive or weak. They're a little bit anemic. You know, they might turn you into a doormat. They're not going to help you get ahead in life. We all know, don't we, that to get ahead, you need to put yourself out there. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, survival of the fittest. But that's the point. These virtues are not designed to help you get ahead in life. They are designed to help us as a community work together so that we all prosper as one. You cannot exhibit any of these virtues in isolation. We show compassion to other people. We show kindness to others. We need to humble ourselves in comparison to pride, which would puff us up over and above other people. And Satan wants to tell us that these virtues are weak, that they are ineffective in today's modern world, that to get ahead, you need to look after yourself and your family first. We saw that with the panic buying of toilet paper, didn't we? But here's the truth that we 
as a society and even us within the church have forgotten when we look down on these virtues. These virtues are all characteristics of our God, aren't they? God is compassionate to us in our weakness. God is kind towards us by showing us his goodness in so many ways. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our powerful Lord and King, who you'll see in Revelation, is very magnificent, is also gentle and humble. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that the Lord is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. Colossians 3 tells us to forgive, as we saw this morning, forgive each other because the Lord has already forgiven us, because God is full of kindness. If you think that these virtues are weak or feminine or irrelevant in today's modern world, then you haven't understood the God who asks you to imitate him. Verse 12 starts by reminding us that we are God's chosen people. We are holy and dearly loved. We belong to him and he chooses us to be like him. And all of these virtues are costly. Compassion means not treating people as they deserve. Kindness means generously doing what is good for another person. Humility will cost you your pride and your entitlement. Gentleness, as I can testify from having young children, will cost you emotional energy. And patience costs you time. And the most costly out of all of them is forgiveness. Verse 13 tells us to bear with one another and to forgive each other if we have any grievances. And God's forgiveness is the reason we forgive and God's forgiveness is the standard by which we forgive as well. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18 about a king who one day wanted to go and settle his financial accounts. This guy gets brought before the king and this guy owes the king a fair bit of money. He doesn't owe him $100. He doesn't even owe him $1,000, not even a million dollars. This guy owes the king the modern day equivalent of $8 billion. $8 billion. And this guy, like the rest of us, has no way of ever realistically paying back the king $8 billion. And so the king says that this man needs to be sold into slavery. And not just him, but his wife and his children and all his assets need to be liquidated to try and recoup just a fraction of the cost that he's owed. And this guy realises how desperate he is and he falls on his knees before the king and he begs for more time to pay off his debt. Now you and I know that none of us realistically are ever going to live long enough to pay off $8 billion worth of debt. And the king knows this too. But out of pity and kindness, the king releases him. He forgives his entire $8 billion debt at a great cost to himself. And the king absorbs that cost onto himself. But as that servant, fresh from being forgiven, walks home to tell his wife the great news, he bumps into another servant who owes him $1,500. Okay, $1,500, that's not nothing. That's not insignificant. I wouldn't mind $1,500 today. But it's also not $8 billion, is it? And the guy who had received forgiveness from the king grabs this other guy by the throat and starts choking him with his bare hands and saying, pay me back the $1,500 now. And the guy being choked gasps between breaths, just just give me more time, I'll pay you back, I promise, I promise. But the guy choking him says, no way, and has him thrown in jail until he can pay him back the $1,500. And Jesus concludes with this. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a story that's both comical on the one hand, because it's so ridiculous, but it's also really chilling, isn't it? It's comical because this servant was forgiven $8 billion and he kind of missed the point of forgiveness, didn't he? He was happy to receive forgiveness from others, but to demand justice when it came to himself. And it's chilling, though, because Jesus then brings it back home to us and shows us how that same double standard lives in our own hearts, doesn't it? We love to be recipients of God's grace, but we don't like to extend that same grace to other people. Forgiveness and mercy for us, but justice against others when they hurt us. Friends, these verses in Colossians 3 are really easy to read, but they're very hard to live out. And I say that not because I'm a mind reader, but because I know that I struggle to live them out too. Especially over the last few years, our world has trained us to think and to value and to hold on to our rights and to demand what we are entitled to. And amidst our pain, it's all too easy in our hurt to hurt one another. I know that I've hurt a lot of people in the last few years. And I'm really sorry for that. I've had to go and apologise to people. And for many of us here today, we may need to go and ask some other people for forgiveness. We might need to extend forgiveness to others as well. Because in the church, we have plenty of opportunities to wound each other and to be wounded by others in church. But Jesus says to his bride, to the church, to bear with one another and to forgive. And as it says later in verse 15, we are called to one body in Christ. God's people don't hold on to grudges against one another. Because if Jesus, by his blood on the cross, brought together every single one of us here today as his body, the church, then we need to maintain that unity through the gospel by sacrificially loving one another. Loving each other isn't shown in the easy times. Loving one another is shown in the testing times. And will we show the genuineness of our faith by the way in which we turn towards one another instead of turning away from one another? Forgiveness is beautifully hard. It is exquisite and difficult. And forgiveness is often misunderstood amongst all the Christians even. In the Bible, forgiveness is not about minimising what happened. It's not about sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it. Forgiveness is giving up on your right to be able to hurt one another for the way that they've hurt you. Hurt people often go on to hurt other people. But forgiveness is a voluntary, a sacrificial choice to give up that right and to end the cycle of hurt. To choose to be willing to count the cost of that hurt that was caused to you and to absorb that cost onto yourself when you were the one who was wronged by another party. Over the last few years, um, I've been on a personal mission after someone pointed out that I've been making a theological error. When someone did something wrong and said sorry, I used to say, don't worry about it, it doesn't matter. But an older and wiser Christian pulled me up on it and said, if someone says sorry, the correct response is to say, I forgive you, not don't worry about it. You see, in our world, we don't like admitting that we need forgiveness. And even when we say sorry, most of the time we say it casually, like if we bump into someone at the shops and we say, oh, sorry, and they say, oh, don't worry about it. But if we have really genuinely hurt someone and they say sorry, the correct response is to say, 
I forgive you. And within God's alternative moral formation community, we relearn that we don't just sweep grievances under the carpet. We don't trivialise them by saying, don't worry about it, it doesn't matter. We learn how to do this transaction where one person says sorry and the other person says, I forgive you. But forgiving also doesn't mean that you overlook what the person did either. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean restoration of relationship, although often sometimes it will. But what it does mean is that you have a posture that is willing to forgive them if they ask for forgiveness or if they apologise. We forgive as the Lord forgave us. In the scriptures, God does not forgive those who do not repent, those who don't ask for it. But God is always ready and always willing to forgive. He is quick to forgive. And so we must be ready to forgive if and when people ask for it. Because the alternative to forgiveness is bitterness and division. A hurt person will either fight or flight. We can fight those people who've hurt us or we can run away from them. But instead of fighting with them or cutting them off, Jesus calls on us to forgive. Forgiveness is unjust. It's unfair. When you forgive someone, they don't get what they deserved. And so forgiveness in our world is pretty weird and offensive. In our society, people don't like forgiveness. We like to shame people and cancel them. Even in the past 12 months, we can look at what happened to someone like Nadia Bartel. She was an online influencer who was busted in the media for snorting cocaine. Or Tim Payne, the former Australian cricket captain, caught up in a sexting scandal. In our world, people like this cannot be forgiven. And so what do we do? We cancel them. We shame them. We pile on them because they get what they deserve. But in the church, that's not how we work. That's not how Jesus' people operate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, Life Together, says this, Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ... We enter into that common life, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and by his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden us, the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. So how do we maintain this peace? In some ways, verse 15 is a summary of all that's come before. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Our world is really confused about what peace is. In our world, peace is a polite standoff, kind of like the Ukraine and Russia at the moment. In our society, you, you cut loose all those people in your life who bring you in any, any negativity. And so peace is avoiding those who rub you up the wrong way. But Jesus says in John chapter 14, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus promises to give you a peace that is not like the peace that the world is offering you. In our society, we have a watered-down view of peace. Peace is like this weak or uh, absence of something. It's like a vacuum where there's no conflict. Conflict is missing or gone, so peace just becomes non-conflict. But that's not how the Bible describes peace. 
In the Old Testament, the Hebrew part of the Bible, a peace or shalom is so much more than just an absence of hostility. The idea of peace or shalom is about integrity or wholeness. It's about things being the way that God wants them to be, about richness, prosperity and health, everything being the way that God designed. It's about human and universal flourishing, a rich, abundant life in community with God's people. And so, yes, there does need to be an absence of hostility for peace to occur, but it's so much more than that. It's a positive experience of life as you always imagined and desired for it to be. But many things can fracture the experience of wholeness and peace within the Christian community. Gossip, rivalry, jealousy, anger, bitterness, pride. But underneath it all lies sin, that desire we all have as individuals to seek our own interests over and above the good of other people. But one practical way we can overcome this pull towards disunity and bitterness is through a positive practicing of a posture of thankfulness. Look with me at verse 15. It says, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times in three verses, Paul tells the Colossians, and he tells us that we need to be thankful. At the moment, I spend so much of my waking hours reminding my children to say thank you, to stop whinging and complaining, to be appreciative for the things we've given them. From sunrise to sundown, it feels like all they do is grumble and complain. And then I put them to bed, and I walk past the mirror, and I realise that my heart is no different, is it? Especially during times of difficulty or pain, what happens is our horizons shrink and all we can see is that painful or hard thing that is right in front of us and we begin to lose perspective of what God has done for us in the world and what God is doing for us in this world. Colossians, if you read the first half of it, is a letter that lifts our eyes to the heavens themselves, out of our immediate circumstances and troubles, out of 2022, out of the bitterness and the pain of interpersonal conflict, and it raises our eyes to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, to the Christ King who has qualified us in chapter 1 to share in the inheritance of saints in light, to the Father who has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. When we are tempted to lose sight of this cosmic reality, Paul tells us to be thankful for Christ, the image of the invisible God, the one who is before all things, the one who holds everything in this universe together by his powerful word. And so, friends, where in your life do you need to be more thankful? Where do you need to lift your eyes to a bigger vision? As someone who's a glass-half-empty kind of guy, I need the help and prayers of my Christian community in this. As a community, we can encourage each other to be more thankful, to turn those conversations around. For all the blessings that God has given us in Christ, we can keep thanking him for them. As part of the ministry team I'm involved with on campus at ES, one of the things I've been blessed by is that four times a year, we cancel our regular staff meetings and spend a whole hour just going around the circle thanking God for all the things he's been doing on campus. And I have to admit that I feel really reluctant before those staff meetings walking into them. A whole hour of being thankful? Sounds like having my teeth pulled. But every time I walk out, I have my vision recalibrated to the good things that God is doing and to the goodness of my God. Because Satan's lies keep telling me that God is stingy. God is unkind. God is not doing things today. 
And those lies get squashed as we spend time reminding each other of Christ's blessings to us. And so maybe today as you drive home or maybe after the service, you can spend some time reflecting on what you're thankful for. Maybe in your community Bible study groups this week, you can encourage each other, not just with prayer requests, but also with thanksgiving to God for what he has already done for us. But there's another way we let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. Christ rules us now in his physical absence by his always present words. You see, we don't just see Jesus now, do we? Maybe you have, I haven't physically seen Jesus now. Uh, But he rules us now by his words. This might seem super detached and less exciting than seeing Jesus in the flesh. But this is how most rulers rule their kingdoms. Queen Elizabeth doesn't go around visiting all her subjects one by one every day. But she does make speeches or televised addresses. She makes laws and rules through the parliament. And the people are ruled in her physical absence by her always present words. And King Jesus apprentices us by his words. For most of us, though, we we think about the message or the word of Christ as a 30-minute monologue called a sermon where someone boring like me gets up and talks at you from the Bible once a week. That is true, but that is so incomplete and so insufficient because the message or the word of Christ is so multifaceted and exciting. And according to verse 16, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This message should be dwelling or living at the very centre of the Jesus community, not stingily or sparingly as if somehow we're going to run out of it, but richly. And so Jesus' people should be speaking Jesus' words. And do you see how Paul calls on all of us to speak the message of Christ to all of us? It's not just the paid professionals up the front giving speeches, But it's also the Christian talking to another Christian after the Sunday service about how they're seeking to live out Christ in their weekly life. It's people praying scripturally with one another before, during and after our gatherings. It's sharing what we've been learning from Jesus in our own personal quiet times in the Bible. It's communicating the message of Christ to a small bunch of kids in kids' church so they can learn to be more like Christ. It's going and asking the older brothers and sisters in our congregation to share their wisdom from being a lifetime of one of Jesus' apprentices. And here in Colossians 3, it's specifically as we sing. Look with me at the second half of verse 16. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, as a theologian, Paul, I really wish would have said through sermons, Bible studies and one-to-one discipleship catch-ups. That would kind of tick all the boxes that I would like him to say. But, and that is true. But here he focuses on how singing can be one way that the Christian community teaches one another to become disciples of Christ. And this makes me ask the question, well, Why do we sing? Do we sing because we find it enjoyable? Or because it makes me as an individual feel closer to God? Well, you won't find that in Colossians chapter 3. The direction we sing in Colossians chapter 3 is upwards and outwards, but not primarily inwards. We sing upwards to God, expressing thankfulness to him for what he has done. And so as we sing, we need to sing songs that are more about him and what he has done than about us and what we have done or will do for him in our response. And we sing outwards. We teach and admonish one another. And so do you see your role as you sing each Sunday as about educating and apprenticing other Christians with the message of Christ? Because if Colossians 3 is true, then this has implications. I need to hear not just the singers up the front, but I need to hear the singers around me, the whole congregation. Because it's not a performance that I come to listen to. It's not a performance, but it's an experience that I participate in. This has implications for the kinds of songs we choose and why we choose them. We need to have the message of Christ dwelling among us in song. And that means we need to sing songs that are biblical, 
soaked in the scriptures so that we get taught accurate and true things about Jesus. I cannot remember any points from a sermon that I heard 30 years ago, or even one year ago, but I can remember Christian songs from my childhood because songs stick. And many songs sung in Christian churches today around the world have the apprenticing value of eating McDonald's. Sure, it might taste nice and look shiny and be cheap and make you feel good, but long-term it won't grow you and it won't keep you in good health. Truth in song matters. And so let's be discerning about what we put on our playlists. Let's make sure that the songs of Jesus' community are rich in the message of Jesus. Today we've seen that the Christian life is communal. Okay? It's a life of maturing discipleship together. And God in his kindness has placed each of you in this transformative learning Christian community to help you work out how to live as one of God's holy chosen people and to mature all of us as disciples of Christ. Sin will always want to destroy that community. But by the power of God's Holy Spirit, and as we look to Christ, we forgive one another. As we let the word of Christ dwell richly among us and his peace rule over us, we begin to live out this new identity, not an individual identity, but a community for the glory of our Saviour, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the gospel, you save us from ourselves. We know that on our own, we are inwardly focused. We are selfish. We put our needs above those of the others. And Father, we ignore you and we ignore our neighbour. But Father, we thank you that in the gospel, you have forgiven us extravagantly. You have cancelled a debt that we could never repay and you have brought us into your family. Father, we pray that that forgiveness, that grace would transform us as well so that we would learn to be a community that forgives, a community that seeks to be at peace with one another and a community that seeks to let the word of Christ dwell richly. Father, please help us to be a transformative learning community that each of us would learn how to obey what Christ has commanded us that we would make disciples more and more, that we would help each other to grow to maturity in Christ so that at the end of time when Jesus returns, we would all be found mature and firm in him. Father, please help us to see our role in this community. Help us not to come to be served, but to come to serve each Sunday as we gather, as we speak your word in song, after the service, during the service and before the service. And Father, please help us to glorify Christ together as his chosen people, the church. And we pray this for his glory. Amen.